Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. The investigative leads were exhausted, and the investigation of each of these four homicides turned cold. There's not a victim profile that all of these people fall into, which may be one reason that the cases were not really connected early on. You know, it's been a long time coming, and now we can actually, you know, really rest better at night. This new evidence created significant momentum for the investigative team that soon snowballed. June 17, 1981. It was a warm late spring day as police officer Deborah Sue Kaur was out patrolling the streets of Aurora, Colorado. Deborah Sue Kaur was a uh, patrol officer with the Aurora Police Department. This is Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. She was on patrol. Uh, she made a traffic stop and um, attempted to arrest uh, the person uh, that she stopped. Um, and as she was attempting to handcuff him, he broke free. There was a struggle. He got his hands on her weapon. The man fired, striking Officer Kaur. He also shot a uh, Aurora Police Explorer Scout. And these are uh, generally, you know, high school or college students who want to go into a career in law enforcement and they do sort of volunteer work for police departments. He happened to be driving by and saw this struggle going on and stopped to try to help her, and he also was shot. The Explorer Scout would survive the injury, but Deborah Sue Kaur would not survive hers. If you look at the Aurora Police Department uh, webpage, she's on their memorial for officers who've lost their lives in the line of duty. She's the first one that department had ever lost. Officer Kaur's killer fled the scene but police were soon able to track him down. He did flee and got away uh, momentarily, uh, although he was arrested a short time later um, at his apartment uh, in Aurora, and he was in the process of trying to saw the handcuffs from his wrist when uh, officers made that arrest. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Two and a half years before that fateful traffic stop in Aurora, Colorado, there was another, at the time seemingly unrelated homicide in neighboring Denver, 
when a man came to the door of a 33-year-old mother named Madeline Fury Lividay. She was married. She had two small children. One of them was just a few months old. And just uh, a few weeks before Christmas in 1978, someone broke into her home um, and stabbed her to death. On Thursday, December 7th, 1978, at 6.15 p.m., 33-year-old Madeline Lividay was found deceased in her residence in the 1600 block of Poplar Street in Denver. Investigators determined the offender entered the victim's residence and stabbed her multiple times, causing her death. Her children were in the home at the time. They were not harmed. But that case uh, quickly uh, went cold, as they say. You know, they exhausted the leads they could, but in a relatively short period of time, it, it joined the the list of unsolved homicides in Denver. She was a young woman with a very bright future. One of Lividay's daughters spoke about her mother during a recent Denver police press conference. She was a writer. She had written for Nature magazines for years and had written and published a book. She was an ecologist with a passion for the natural world and the environment. She was a loving wife, sister, daughter, and mother to two very young girls. But in 1978, she had that bright future ripped away from her. Tragically, we didn't get to grow up with her and to hear her stories and to witness the contributions that she could have made to the world. A year and a half later, on Sunday, August 10th, 1980, 53-year-old Dolores Barajas was walking to work in Denver. She was from out of state, but had spent the summer in Colorado visiting family and working at a hotel. She was walking to work on what was to have been her last day uh, on the job and her last full day in Denver. She was scheduled to return to her home in another state the following day. But she was just found stabbed on a Denver street just a few blocks from sort of the center of downtown. At 7.10 in the morning, Denver police officers were called to the 500 block of East 17th Avenue on a report of a woman lying in the roadway. Arriving officers discovered 53-year-old Dolores Barajas suffering from multiple stab wounds. Ms. Barajas died at the scene. And she was, um, you know, she was 53 years old. She was a, a wife and a mother and a grandmother. At the time, the killing of Dolores Barajas was not connected to Madeline Fury Lividay's stabbing death a year and a half earlier. Investigators were not connecting it to the first one. You can imagine that while we look at it now and see that both women were stabbed, there's quite a difference in uh, demographics. Um, You know, we've got a a 33-year-old woman, a mother of two small children. We've got a 53-year-old grandmother. The incidents happened in sort of in the same part of town, but not real close to each other. Uh, so there, w- there was not a lot of thought given at the time, uh, necessarily, that these were, were linked to each other. Then, just four months later, another fatal stabbing in the area. On Sunday, December 21st, 1980, at 10.45 in the morning, a 911 call was made regarding an unconscious woman lying in the street near East 47th Avenue and Andrews Drive in the Montbello neighborhood. Police are called after a, a woman's body is sort of discovered in a, in a street in uh, the north part of town, uh, northeast part of town. The responding officers located 27-year-old Gwendolyn Harris, deceased at the location. 
Ms. Harris had been stabbed multiple times. That woman was Gwendolyn Harris. She was 27 years old. She had been last seen the previous night at a lounge, and um, she also was stabbed to death. And so you have a woman accosted in her home in the first case, Madeline Fury Livaday. You have a woman accosted on the street in the second case, Dolores Barajas. And now in this latest case, you have a woman who, you know, had been last seen the night before out at a, at a, at a lounge in Denver. So you have different things going on in each of those cases. The common denominator is that they were all stabbed to death. The following summer, in June of 1981, there would be a fourth stabbing in nearby Adams County. On Saturday, January 24th, 1981, members of the Adams County Sheriff's Office were called to the area of 64th Avenue and Broadway on a report of a female lying in a field. In that field, deputies discovered the body of a 17-year-old girl. They located 17-year-old Antoinette Parks, who had been stabbed multiple times. Miss Parks was deceased. Antoinette Parks was found in a sort of a weedy field in kind of a uh, somewhat rural kind of industrial area, basically straight north of Denver, a few miles. And she was 17. She was also six to seven months pregnant at the time. And um, she was also stabbed to death. And again, with the other cases, the police worked leads as they could, but this case also ultimately went on the rolls of, of the unsolved. And the thing to that's significant here is that this was in a gif- different jurisdiction. The first three murders took place in the city of Denver, meaning they were being investigated by the Denver Police Department. But the killing of Antoinette Parks was in Adams County, meaning it was investigated by the Adams County Sheriff's Department. And um, I can tell you from reporting on a lot of stories about homicides from that era that Interagency communication and cooperation was not what it is today. It was not uncommon for different jurisdictions to be working on cases and have no idea that other jurisdictions had cases that might have some similarities. In this case, of course, we've got a white woman accosted in her home. We've got um, a 17-year-old black young woman. We've got a 27-year-old Black woman, Dolores Barajas is 53 and a grandmother. So there's not a victim profile that all of these people fall into, which may be one reason that the cases were not really connected early on. For decades, all four of these cases went unsolved. The investigators and forensic scientists who conducted the initial investigation of these deaths 40 years ago used all available resources and investigative methods that were available to them as they attempted to identify the offender responsible in each case. They spent a tremendous amount of time on these investigations, following leads and questioning potential suspects. Despite these efforts, the investigators were not able to determine the identity of the offender in these cases. The investigative leads were exhausted and the investigation of each of these four homicides turned cold. They stayed cold until the 2000s, when investigators decided to take another look. Since 2004, the cases involving Ms. Lividay, Ms. Barajas, and Ms. Harris have been reviewed multiple times by several Denver detectives and forensic scientists. Initially, these cases were investigated as separate incidents, but through the work of investigators and scientists, DNA evidence was discovered that began linking these cases together. This new evidence created significant momentum for the investigative team that soon snowballed. Finally, in 2013, investigators were able to link the cases of Dolores Barajas and Madeline Lividay through DNA evidence left by the perpetrator. 
Then in 2015, they determined that DNA evidence linked the Gwendolyn Harris case to those two prior cases. Then finally, in 2018, investigators were able to tie the Antoinette Parks case from Adams County to the three Denver cases. So this was like a six or seven year process at a point in time when the DNA testing has become really, really sophisticated and sensitive that the investigators in Denver and Adams County were able to realize, my gosh, all four of these women were killed by the same person. And importantly, killed by only one person. With this new evidence, the investigative team had renewed hope that the individual responsible for these deaths could be identified. Investigators now knew they were searching for a serial killer. They didn't have a name, but they had a DNA profile. In 2019, using in-house investigative genetic genealogy, the investigative team was able to narrow their focus to ancestry of the offender in Texas. In 2021, the Denver Crime Lab personnel, along with cold case investigators, worked with their counterparts in Texas to conduct familial DNA searches of the Texas CODIS database. Through this work, investigators identified a relative of the offender and quickly focused their efforts on one particular individual, Joe Michael Irvin. Joe Michael Irvin had died in 1981 and was buried in Arlington, Texas. Investigators weren't able to obtain archived DNA samples to compare Irvin's DNA to the DNA profile of their killer. So they had Irvin's body exhumed in January of 2022. They obtained a DNA sample, ran a one-to-one comparison, and it came back as a match. The investigative team realized the fruits of their work over the years. The DNA sample obtained from Mr. Irvin matched the previously unidentified DNA profile of the offender believed to be responsible for the deaths of the four victims. Uh, First, welcome. Uh, My name is Doug Shepman. I'm with the Denver Police Public Affairs Office. And I want to thank you all for being here for this announcement regarding the identification of a suspect in four cold case homicides. In late January, representatives of the Denver Police Department and Adams County Sheriff's Office held a press conference to announce the identification of Joe Michael Irvin as the person responsible for the deaths of these four women. And according to investigators... Irvin was also responsible for a fifth homicide, the killing of an Aurora police officer who pulled him over in the summer of 1981, Officer Deborah Sue Kaur. Joe Michael Irvin was also the man who had killed Aurora police officer Deborah Sue Kaur. Uh, officer Kaur was murdered June 27th of 1981, which would have been just three days after Antoinette Park's murder. And... Um, Joe Michael Irvin was arrested shortly thereafter in her murder. And on July 1st, so again, just a few days afterward, he left a note confessing to killing Officer Kaur, and he hanged himself in his jail cell. The investigators working these cases got their answer. They found their killer. But it was too late for the justice system to hold Irvin accountable something Kevin Vaughn says he asked the commander in charge of the cold case unit in Denver about. He said that, um, you know, there's satisfaction in knowing that they can provide answers to these victims' families, satisfaction in knowing that they have cleared these cases, and satisfaction in knowing that even the passage of 40 years did not keep them from trying to get these answers. But he also acknowledged that that's tempered by the reality that um, 
Joe Michael Irvin won't be held accountable in a court of law. He won't have to face a jury. He won't have to, you know, go through a trial where some of the unknowns might be answered. The police tell us that they still have a lot of questions. They don't know why these women were his victims. Was it a case of just opportunity? You know, saw someone on the street, grabbed them, saw Madeline Fury live a day, walk into her house and walked up and knocked on the door. They, they don't know a lot of these answers. Another unknown is what might have happened if Irvin's final victim, Officer Deborah Sukor, hadn't been able to put handcuffs on him prior to her death. I, I think, um, you know, one of Madeline Fury Livaday's daughters said it best, which is that Deborah Sukor's sacrifice, her giving of her life in an attempt to stop this guy in, in another crime, he was wanted in a different crime when that was the reason she was trying to arrest him, that that meant that there were no more people like her mother who were murdered because of him. It's been a lot of information to absorb so suddenly after all this time. We found out that this man murdered four more women and he assaulted an uncounted number of others. In addition, to learn about the line of duty death of Officer Deborah Sue Kaur has been personally very impactful. She was out doing her job when she attempted to arrest this serial killer for an unrelated crime. And in the course of his arrest, she was murdered herself. But with her sacrifice, she prevented him from killing anyone else. And it's clear that he wasn't going to stop on his own. She stopped him. The police stopped him back in 1981. She was emotional when she spoke, and it was clear that um, you know, she was dealing not only with the shock and surprise of having had her mother's killer identified after all of these years, but she also to, you know, was profoundly moved to understand that the same person was responsible for the death of a police officer. And that daughter is actually a firefighter. So it's somebody in the, in the business of, of doing a dangerous job on behalf of the community. And um, I, she seemed very moved by that and spoke at some length about Officer Corps. And for that, for Officer Corps' sacrifice of her life, we are thankful. Madeline Fury Livaday's sisters also shared a statement at that press conference, read by Denver Cold Case Unit Detective Carrie Johnson. She was a romantic who loved her life. But when her daughters were born, she was over the moon. One sweet memory we have is that she used to sing to her girls the song Stevie Wonder wrote when his daughter was born, Isn't She Lovely? She could never have imagined leaving them. It is an unmitigated tragedy that they never got to know their creative and talented mother. Madeline was loved and admired by her family and all who knew her. We will never stop missing her. Also there were family members of Antoinette Parks, the youngest of Irvin's victims. Well, first of all, I'd like to say this has taken a long time. We can finally have peace knowing who did this to my little sister. Two of Antoinette Parks' brothers were at the press conference and they had had uh, four sisters and and the two of them, so there were six siblings. 
And all of the sisters ha- are deceased now. Antoinette, of course, was murdered all those years ago, and then they had uh, a sister who died of cancer fairly recently and another sister who died in a car accident and another sister who also died in the last few years. And so they were the only two left. And, and again, the passage of time led them to sort of rue the fact that their other sisters and their mom were not alive to see this day. Um, but they also talked about the fact that uh, they felt like they were going to uh, rest easier, that they would have more peace in their lives knowing now who was responsible for the death of their sister. I'd like you guys to know we have closure. We're thankful for the hard work, determination of everybody involved here. I wish my sisters and my mom could all be here to see this. Fortunately, they didn't live long enough to see this, but I know they're here with us in spirit, and I want to say thank you guys for all coming to take the time to listen to us. You know, like my brother said, you know, it's been a long time coming, and now we can actually, you know, really rest better at night. Like I said, the rest of them, they're not here. Well, like I said, if my mom or my sisters are here, but I know they are, because they're sitting high and looking low. And they're saying right now, Hey, thank you guys, every last one of you, for everything. Anybody had anything to do with this, believe me, they're saying thank you and God bless you all. Thank you. The families of Dolores Barajas and Gwendolyn Harris also shared statements at the press conference, read by a Denver police spokesperson. They requested privacy as they processed the developments in in the case, but shared with us these messages that I'll read. Dolores Barajas was a wife, mother, grandmother, and a beloved part of a loving family. She had spent the summer of 1980 visiting family in Denver and working at a hotel downtown. That Sunday was to be her last day of work before returning to her home out of state. Her family still missed her very much and expressed great appreciation for everyone's efforts and determination in solving this case. Gwendolyn Denise Harris was a mother, sister, daughter, aunt, granddaughter, and niece. Gwen was a bright, soft-spoken, athletic young woman who enjoyed life and always had a smile on her face. Her family also shared that because of the decision of another to take life with no regard, the 1980 murder of Gwendolyn Harris was devastating and unimaginable to the family. Gwen will forever be in our hearts and always our joy. The press conference ended with a reminder from Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin that for every unsolved homicide, there are families waiting for closure. Today, not only do we remember the victims and their families, but we also have a call to action. A call to action. There are witnesses out there that can help us solve additional murders, that can help families uh, from the great harm that is been committed to our community. Therefore, my plea, my ask, is that if you have any information on any homicide or crime, please come forward. Um, Now I'd like to close just by saying, let us never forget these victims.
For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redman. Reed, let me ask, what else have investigators been able to learn about the man they say committed these murders, Joe Michael Irvin? Do they think there could be other cases linked to him? Yeah, well, I have no doubt that that's something that investigators are, are taking a, a close look at. What we know is that Irvin had been arrested and released multiple times throughout the 70s. Kevin Vaughn told me that some of those charges involve sexual assault. And that's really all I know about his past. But Kevin also said investigators told him that they don't think Irvin is likely to be connected to any other unsolved cases, at least not at this point. And they say that that's largely because of the actions of Officer Deborah Sukor, who managed to get those handcuffs on him and slow him down enough that police were able to catch up to him uh, before he could flee in 1981. And, you know, who knows what would have happened from there if he was able to get away that day. You know, we heard the daughter of Madeline Fury Livide say that this was not a guy she thought was going to stop on his own. One important point I wanted to make here, these are cases that had not been in the news for a long time. I feel like anytime we do something that involves an older case that gets solved like these, uh, it must send a reassuring message to families of other cold case victims. That's exactly right. It's a clear message that at least these investigators in Denver and in Adams County, Colorado, are not just working on the high-profile cases, but they're looking back at some other cases like this that haven't been talked about as much, where maybe they haven't been going on the news and asking the public for help to solve. And I think that also speaks to the role of some of these new DNA technologies, where in the past, maybe all investigators might have had in terms of trying to bring in new leads after a long time would have been appealing to the public. But in these cases, with this new technology, the physical evidence, at least here, was enough. And you know, DNA technology is only going to keep evolving. So I imagine we're going to keep hearing about stories like this one where cases that haven't necessarily been in the public eye are getting solved. And Kevin Vaughn told me that he thinks that that's absolutely going to be the case in Colorado. And I told him, we'll have him back on the podcast every time it happens. Reed, related to that, the thing about new DNA technologies that people seem to focus on, in fact, we seem to focus on quite a bit as well, is their ability to crack cases that have been cold for a very long time. Something else that's kind of obvious but it doesn't always get as much attention is that these technologies can prevent cases that are happening today from becoming decades old cold cases in the first place. Absolutely. That's one of the things I kept thinking about while working on this story is if these four murders happen today, there's no way it would take investigators that long to figure out that there was a serial killer. At the very least, the three cases in Denver, I imagine, would be linked pretty quickly. I think Denver police can even do a lot of that genetic work in-house. That's something they were talking about at the press conference. So you're right. That's that's the other piece of this that is really exciting, is that these technologies mean that hopefully in the future, families won't have to go as long as the families of the victims in these cases did without answers. All right, Reed. Thanks for bringing us the story this week. And thanks to Kevin Vaughn at KUSA in Denver. If you haven't already, check out our new show, Killer Case is hosted by veteran investigative journalist Brian Ross. New episodes come out every Wednesday. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.